Oh, jeez, mate. Nice shirt. I really like the way you dressed. Look bloody great. So why all the compliments? Well, I'm going to show you after this. Hi, my name's Kyle Macker, and I've been a pilot in the aviation industry for half my life. So you might be asking, why am I doing a marketing podcast, right? Well, I'm so passionate about aviation, flying a big jet, it's just awesome, there's nothing like it. However, I realised that being a pilot is nothing what it used to be, like all jobs, working for the man. And if I wanted to live the life of my dreams on my terms, I was going to have to teach myself a new skill. So three years ago, I started my marketing journey. I dove deep into the marketing world. I dug into the books, psychology, persuasion, anything that would help with a person saying yes to a product or service. I love it. However, I have a problem. It's all theoretical knowledge. I have no hands-on experience and I still have so many questions. The biggest thing I know is that we want our businesses to stand out in a noisy marketplace. We have to become better marketers. The best marketer will always win. So follow me on my journey and hopefully along the way it can help you spark up a few ideas that I've learned that you can implement in your business. So make sure you subscribe to my channel so you don't miss the latest episodes. Also, if there's anything you want to know about, get in touch with me on Facebook and I've set up a group called This Marketing Thing. So let's get into it. Okay, so this episode we're going to have a look at liking. Now this is the fifth chapter of the Influence book. Now some of these are pretty common sense, while other ones are a little bit, oh really, well that's very interesting to know. Now he breaks the chapter up into five components. Physical attractiveness, similarity, compliments, like I gave you on the intro, contact and cooperation, and conditioning and association. Once we get into those last two, it's really quite interesting stuff. Now he basically starts the chapter off talking about Tupperware parties and those of you who don't know what Tupperware is it's basically a really strong container that you can store you know you can store stuff in you can cook in and there would be Tupperware parties and basically what there was there was a host and she would invite all her friends to come over and there would be a Tupperware demonstrator that would show you how to use the Tupperware and the newest and latest and greatest in Tupperware. I actually remember as a kid going to a couple of these and I think my mum even hosted one when I was really young once. But this company was huge. They were like making in the States two and a half million dollars a day and there was a Tupperware party around the world I think every 2.7 seconds. So they were absolutely massive. Now today they I don't think they do Tupperware parties anymore. I think that's sort of a thing of the past. But you see other companies sort of starting to do it. I think they do like those Avon parties instead of Tupperware. It's now makeup. But what makes these so these parties so powerful is a number of things and some of the weapons of influence that we've already seen in the previous chapters. So there's reciprocation. So people win prizes before the buying starts. And if you don't win, don't worry, you can put your hand in a lucky dip. So everyone gets something. So there's that reciprocation. So you've got something, you should feel like maybe you should give them something back, right? Commitment. So everyone goes around and talks about how they use their Tupperware now that they already own. So there's the commitment there. 
And then once the buying starts, there's a social proof. Well, you know, Molly's the same as me. I should do what she's doing and, and, and buy a product. But the thing that makes Tupperware parties just so much, gives them so much power is not the Tupperware demonstrator, even though she might be very entertaining and persuasive. It's the host. Now, she might be sitting over there serving drinks, making conversation. But this is where Tupperware as a company is brilliant, really, because they what they would do is they would give the host a percentage of the sales that were made. And therefore, it arranges like that the customer buys from a friend rather than some Tupperware lady that they don't know. Now, a couple of consumer researchers, Frenzer and Davies, they examine the social ties between partygoers and people who brought and how much they liked the hostess. And what they found is that a strong social bond that they was twice as much likely to purchase. Now, Tupperware is not the only company to use this sort of friendship principle. And other companies have found that the friend doesn't even have to be present to be effective. Often just the mention of a friend's name is enough. I remember in my early 20s, I was contacted by a gym, you know, like a weightlifting gym, and they contacted me and they said, oh, hi, it's so-and-so from this gym. Your friend Glenn gave me your number to contact you and you might be interested in a gym membership. And usually I'd just hang up on those sort of calls. But I thought, oh, geez, he might be a friend of Glenn's. And I almost felt like I'd be rejecting Glenn if I just hung up the phone on him right there. So it's a highly effective technique if you can get the friends of people that have already bought your products. I mean, basically, the 50% of the sale has already been made. So if you can get the name of friends of people who have purchased your products and services that might be interested, obviously, it's a big step in the right direction to making a sale. Now we go into the five subheadings of this chapter. And the first one's physical attractiveness. Now, I guess this one's almost like common sense. I think instinctively we know that good-looking people have an advantage. And we do this automatically without knowing, assign attractive people with favorable traits like kind, talented, capable, honesty, intelligence, all those kind, nice words, right? Now, this happens without forethought it's 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 in the subconscious right we we do this without knowing about it now social scientists call this call it a halo effect now a halo effect occurs when one characteristic of a person stands out i.e physical attractiveness and they actually did a study on canadian voters and they found that they voted for attractive candidates received two and a half times as many votes as unattractive candidates. What was really interesting about this study, I think, is that 73% of Canadian voters surveyed denied in the strongest possible ways that they could even be influenced by physical appearance, and only 14% even allowed for the possibility of it. Now, there's a... This is... Another study was done as well in job interviews. They found that people that are very well groomed even accounted for more favorable hiring decisions than even job qualifications. So isn't that unbelievable? That's saying that the way you groom and your physical appearance is more important than the way 
you know, then you, the qualifications you have for that job. I hope they don't start hiring pilots like that. That would be bad. But again, like the voters in Canada, the interviewers wouldn't know they were doing it. And in this study, the interviewers claimed that appearance only played a small role on their choices. And again, research shows that good-looking people get a more favourable outcome in the legal system. There was a study in Pennsylvania where 74 male defendants were twice as likely to avoid jail and than less attractive defendants, as well as paying less in fines. Now, both male and female jurors exhibited the same attractive base favouritism. Now, there is a exception to this rule. If you're a direct competitor, i.e. a romantic rival. But short of that, attractive people definitely in our society have a big advantage. Okay, so now we go into the second subheading of this chapter, similarity. Now, this one's more applicable because, I mean, really, there's not much we can do if we're unattractive. And most people only have average looks. So there's got to be other ways for people to like us. And similarity is one of them. And it's one of the most influential. And I guess it should come as no surprise that we like people who are similar to us. I mean, if we looked in the last chapter, social proof, and we found that we take behavioral cues off people we don't know in uncertain situations, then it should come as no surprise that we like people that are similar to us, right? And now this holds true for a range of instances like beliefs, opinions, personality traits, background, lifestyle, even the way we dress. Now there was several studies that were likely, more likely to help people that dress like us. There was one such study in the 1970s and what the researchers did is they dressed up in hippie clothes or just normal, normal clothes, they called it straight clothes, but and asked for a dime to make a phone call. Now, when they were similarly dressed, two-thirds of the people complied with the request. Now, when they were dissimilarly dressed, less than half of the people complied. Another place this is found is car salesmen use these techniques. If they find like or see in a trade-in situation, there's a golf mag sitting on the seat. They might sort of say, oh, geez, I hope the weather holds off this weekend so I can go play around a golf. So that instantly builds that similarity. Or uh, another example, like interstate plates. So they might go, oh, I was actually born in that state. You know, so there's, there's that similarity there. Another example, they might use this mirror and match technique. So they might even copy the posture or the way that you walk or all that builds similarity and helps at the end when it comes to sign on the dotted line. Another really good example these days is when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, you see an ad and it's for some sort of online coaching, right? So you click on it, you go on and the first thing might be a webinar or a video sales letter, right? So you watch the video sales letter. And on that the person presenting will talk about their background story. Now, they might have done their research and found that that target audience didn't do very well in school or come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. 
And what they do is they just match that. They say, oh, I didn't do very well in school. I come from a poor background. So it builds that similarity. And it all helps with us liking them. And then, as we know from the Tupperware parties, we're definitely more likely to buy at the end. Now we move on to the third subheading of this chapter called compliments. Now, I started the show off by giving a compliment. We are suckers for flattery, although there are limits to our gullibility, especially if we know the flatterer is trying to manipulate us. However, as a rule, though, we tend to like people that give us praise. Often it doesn't even have to be true. It can be sort of false, right? There was an experiment done in North Carolina, and I think the the paper was published in 1978. A group of men in the study received compliments from another person that needed a favour from them. Some received only comments that were positive, some received only negative comments, and some received a mixture, right? Now, there was three findings out of that study. The, the evaluator that gave just positive comments was liked the most. Secondly, this was even the case knowing that the person making the flattery had something to gain from them liking him. And then finally, unlike other types of comments, pure praise didn't have to be true to work. It just goes to show we have an automatic positive reaction to people that praise us, even though we know that they might be trying to manipulate us. Okay, so now we get into the fourth subheading of this chapter on liking, and it's called contact and cooperation. Now, basically at the start, it talks about we like things that are familiar to us. That's pretty self-explanatory. But it's because of the effects on liking, familiarity plays a major role in decisions, all sorts of things, and even elections. So it goes on to an example in the book about an IHO election. I can't say that word. And it's about a little-known candidate, sort of a backrunner, and he swept to win this election. Now, how he did it is that he, three weeks before the election, he changed his name to Brown. Now, that name Brown was steeped in Ohio political tradition. So he won the election just based off his name because people had voted on what they were familiar with. And unconsciously... Familiarity affects liking. And often attitudes towards things is how frequently we've seen it in the past. Like, I mean, you look at McDonald's. They've got advertising everywhere on billboards, shop fronts, you name it. It's there. So we see it so often because they know that how, how that familiarity plays a role in how much we like something. I mean... For me, I remember watching this guy on Instagram, and he's Gary V, right? And at, when I first saw him, I was like, who is this raging idiot? But now, because I see him on my Instagram feed all the time, I've, I've started to like him because he has become familiar to me, and we like things that are familiar to us. Now, this is why all those digital marketers post content all the time on Facebook and Instagram and Reddit and all those things because they know that familiarity leads to liking, which increased liking leads to increased social influence. And then it's easier for them 
to ask us when they ask us to buy something or take action doing something that we'll do it because we like them. Now there's an experiment that really highlights this and subjects come into a room in front of a television screen and faces, faces sorry, flash through so quickly that they didn't know who they were and even when after the experiment was finished they asked if they'd recognize any of those faces and the, the subject said no. But what they did is they, in the flash roll, they put someone's face in there that was seen more frequently. Now, later on in an interaction, that person was there and they found that the subjects liked that person more due to familiarity. And as I said before, increased liking leads to increased social influence and the subjects were more easily persuaded then by that person's opinions that they'd seen more, most frequent. However, this isn't the full equation. This way of thinking would say that we like everyone we see all the time and we know that's just not the case. We, we have people we don't like. So just pure contact with that person doesn't guarantee that we like them. One experiment that really highlights this is a, an experiment carried out many years ago now by a Turkish-born social scientist named Muzaffar Sharif. And he wanted to study intergroup conflict, like so why we don't like certain people at school or at work or something of the sort. So what he decided to do was in a summer camp situation. So he basically sort of took over like a boy's summer camp and he was going to manipulate the social environment. All the while, none of the boys knew that they were in, a, in this social experiment. But what he did is he split the total number of lads into two cabins and it wasn't long before there was a little bit of rivalry, sort of us versus them. But then he thought, I need to accelerate this. So... Then he gave the cabins names, the Eagles and the Rattlers. So therefore, it gave the boys in those cabins a bit of a new identity. I'm an Eagle or I'm a Rattler. And the rivalry started quite small. It was just a bit of demeaning of qualities like, oh, that, you know, they've got nothing on us. It started small. But what they did then and the results they got was not expected by Sheriff at all. They introduced competitions. They were athletic contests like Tug of Wars, Game of Footy, and that's when it really sort of started to heat up. There was name-calling, pushing and shoving. Opposing teams were called cheats and names. And even in one instance, cabins were raided by other rival cabin and banners were set alight. Now... Sharif had definitely thought, wow, I have the recipe for disharmony. Just separate into groups, increase the competitiveness between the groups, and there you have it, cross-hatred. So he was, with the other researchers, then thinking, well, how do we turn this off and bring it back so that th these guys can get along? And what they thought, if they just do the contact principle, just get everyone in a bunch together and eventually they'll start liking each other. Well, that was a disaster. They did some movie nights and it became a shouting match. There was even a fight in one of them. And then, well, they thought, we've got to keep trying. So they, they did like a big picnic type thing. And apparently it just turned into a massive food fight. So at this stage, they thought, 
wow, we've really created like this Dr. Frankenstein monster and we don't even know how to turn it off. So what the researchers did was devise a series of situations. And if the boys didn't cooperate, it would adversely affect everybody. In one situation, the food truck for the camp was stuck. And if they didn't free it, the boys wouldn't eat. So they pushed and pulled and worked and cooperated together to free the truck. In another situation, the water supply come under threat by damaged pipes. And they all had to cooperate and work together to fix the broken pipes before end of light. So it was a common crisis requiring cooperation. Now the consequences, while not instantaneous, they worked. The co-jointed efforts of cooperating towards a common goal slowly bridged the rift that they had, that the boys had between each other. The pushing and shoving stopped, name calling had ended, and the boys began intermixing when they were eating. And even so much so that the boys who they were asked who their best friends were, and they began, began naming guys from the other cabin. So it was the cooperation towards a common goal that had made the boys start to like the other lads from the other cabin. Now this can be seen in a whole raft of situations and one of them that really comes to mind is, and it's in the book as well, is new car salesmen. You know, they, they will you know, be cooperating with you to go in to do battle with the manager and get a good deal. I remember my, I was with my dad once buying, and he was buying a new car, and this is exactly what happened. You also see like this in a good cop, bad cop situation against, say, a young robbery suspect, and the good or the bad cop is jumping down the young suspect's throat. He belongs in jail. Just throw away the key, and then the good cop will turn to the bad cop and say, just calm down, settle down, Don't, no need for that sort of thing. And then the bad cop will tell the good cop, what do you know, don't you talk to me and tell me to settle down. And then the, the good cop will then turn his attention to the suspect and he starts speaking directly to the suspect and say, you know, I'm working with you, cooperating with you to try and get a good deal. And the reason this works so well is because you think someone is working with you for you. They're cooperating with you to get a better deal. And then you end up liking them. And then when you like that person, you're more likely to be persuaded by them to do something that they wanted you to do. So now we move on to the fifth and final subheading of this chapter in liking. It's called conditioning and association. Now, have you ever blamed the weatherman for bad weather? Like he got it wrong or it was just bad and you went, ah. Oh, he made, you know, he made it sort of like this. My, my old man does this all the time. If we're, if we're going to go out in the boat or we've gone out in the boat and the wind is more than what it was advertised as, he'll be like, oh, that idiot got it wrong. And what it does is it goes back to the old Persian armies and Persian messengers, if they come back and, to, and told us success and victory, they were given food and drink any woman they wanted, they were treated like heroes. But come back with the message of defeat, he was usually slain. So it was like the nature of bad news had infected the messenger. So people have a natural tendency to dislike the person that bears bad news. 
just through simple association. So when bringing it back to the weatherman, so being connected to bad weather has a negative effect through association. However, on the flip side of that, sunshine does wonders for your popularity. The association rules are very genuine, general one, and the association will either be bad or good will influence how people feel about us. Now, this is taught to us at a very young age. I remember my mum used to say to us, oh, don't play with that boy. He was a little bat, rat bag, right? And she knew about the rule of association. He, she knew that the next rock that he threw at some kid and hurt them, that if I was hanging around him, I would be guilty through association. Now, we see this in the business world too. Like, why do advertise use good-looking models around their cars? Well, you know, first of all, like, it, all, it all depends on who you're selling. It's all about the who. So, I mean, if you're advertising a minivan, that's probably more for mothers with kids, right? But however, like a sports car, that is definitely your advertising to a man, right? So, I mean, so for the first thing, it's a hook. It will hook them in. But then through association, what the advertiser is trying to do is make the car seem more desirable and more beautiful because he, he wants you to respond to the product the same way as the model. Now, you see this with uh, celebrities and sports stars as well. That you, know, you might have a sports star and he is a tennis player and he'll advertise tennis rackets or some sort of tennis ball or something. You know, a golfer might advertise golf balls. But then you, you know, go, take it further, then you'll see sort of, and that sort of makes sense, but take it further and then you sort of see things that like the golfer is advertising uh, insurance or the tennis players advertising some sort of car or hotel. And that sort of doesn't make sense. But what you need to realize is what the advertiser is doing is that he's trying to make the connection through association. It doesn't necessarily mean that the connection makes sense. The connection just has to be a positive one. Now, there's a lot of strange events that can be explained by this association. You know, people linking themselves to positive events and they distance themselves from negative ones. You know, I remember back in the 90s, I think it was, I remember in South America there was, you know, referees and soccer players being murdered because the ref had made a bad call, the player had done something wrong on the, on the, on the field. And then in Europe, you see these crazy riots when they, you know, when teams had lost, and it's like far out. It's just a game, right? Well, not exactly to these people. To these people, the relationship is anything but. It's highly personal, and through association, they've associated their identity with this team. So I mean, someone that's born in Madrid, you know, that the the place of birth, place of residence. They associate that location there with that team, their team. It's their team, right? And, you know, like, I mean, when, when a football team wins, it affects one's status. It, it's a big status boost. It, you know, it become, it's become one's identity. And, 
you know, we're, we're, that we're superior and we're, we're trying to prove this. And you might ask, well, to who? Well, it's to ourselves, but it's to others as well. And we're trying to get anyone that views that connection to think more highly of us, to like us more. You know, you see this after a uh, after a big game, and it doesn't matter whether it's soccer or it's foot, you know, football, AFL, rugby league. It doesn't matter. And you see, and I mean, even I've done it. You know, like, um, you know, for rugby league when I was growing up. Oh, we're number one. We're the champs. Well, I didn't do anything. You know, like I mean, and you know, people sitting in the stands, they didn't do anything. They drank beer and ate hot dogs, but they've now associated themselves their identity, their status with that team. And, you know, they, they actually did a, a, a study that um, people then distance themselves when they lose the game. And, you know, instead of saying we, they say they. They lost the game. Now, they do this because they're trying to preserve one's self-image or status. Now, although we have this connection to bathe in our team's glory, to what degree varies amongst us? Now, Cialdani goes on to give the example of the 1980 Olympics when the USA team beat the uh, Russian hockey team. And there was people outside the arena buying, you know, stubs of tickets for $100. And, you know, they they have to... they. They get their status boost by telling their friends that they were there to experience, you know, this epic win. And he sort of explains that these people have an identity flaw, a poor self-concept, low personal worth. And they get the increased status, their status boost, not from their own personal achievements, but from the promotion of the associations with others of attainment. Or put another way, like they inflate their visible connections of others of success. And we see this in our society. We see the name dropper, person always dropping names, or a groupie, so she can tell her friends that she was with that musician for a group of time. And these people view their accomplishments from it from externally from themselves. He talks about another type of person as well. Instead of you know getting their status boost, you know, from inflating their visible connections with others to success, they they try to inflate the success uh, of a person they are visibly connected to. An example of this is like a, a stage mother obsessed with securing, you know, some sort of stardom for her child. Now, just sort of one last thing on association, which I've been seeing lately, and it's it's quite an interesting uh, concept. It's very well used, I think, um, by the people that are doing it. You're seeing, I'm seeing lately that people are organizing these summits or events and what's happening is that there's sort of like a no-name person is getting five or six big names in that niche or, or market and they're all talking on a subject. Now that person that's not very well known has organized it and managed to get these people to come along to his summit. And just by association, he's seen as an authority figure amongst in his industry because he's associated with those people. And it's, it's quite powerful. So anyway, guys, that's the end of the uh, liking chapter and in influence. 
Hope you guys enjoyed it. And um, next week we've got the next chapter. That's authority. Sort of touches on that last point I made about um, the summits and stuff. But uh, no, look, it's uh, that's a good chapter too. So don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you guys next week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and you can get a hold of me on Facebook at a group I've set up, This Marketing Thing, and on Instagram, at This Marketing Thing. Until next time, see you later.